Yep, I'm actually starting on time. This is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. This is my cat. Yeah, that's Moxie. You guys were calling out for her. I already saw in the live chat people demanding a Moxie appearance. So there she is. We are going to be taking your questions from the live chat today. The first one I have, though, is kind of special. It comes from a class, a sixth grade Bible class from Lansing Christian School in Lansing... Is it Michigan? I think it's in Michigan. Uh, Miss Fuller's class, Mrs. Fuller's class. And they want to know, back to me here, in Genesis, God destroys the world, saying that the world has become unholy, but saves Noah. Why couldn't he just do something bad to the people instead of doing all of the work to start over after the flood? You know, it, it, so the question is kind of like what the thumbnail showed on this video. If you saw that, it, you know, it's was the flood overkill? Was that kind of like, why, why not? Now, I, I always say something, and, and I'm gonna, this answer is directed towards a, a middle school class, so I'm going to answer it slightly differently than if I would have answered it towards somebody else. But um, whenever we're asking, like, why did God do it this way, not that way, we're, we have to be just careful that we don't assume too much. Because, you know, when you look at God who knows all things, who has the whole plan for the whole universe and for every day of, of, of all, all of creation— and you ask, like, why didn't you do this or that? We, we never really have all the information like he does. And so it's a little hard to, you know, do that, to challenge God. But but it is okay to just wonder, like, hey, can I find reasons why? Just humbly ask the question. And for that, I will have an answer for you. And I hope that you find this helpful. Um, I want to just say that... that the earth is like connected to us in a, in, a, in a way. And us as humans, in Genesis 1, when God creates Adam and Eve, when he creates male and female, he gives them like dominion or authority over earth and the creatures that are on the planet. That this is, this is our domain to like be fruitful and multiply, or in other words, to like fill and populate the earth with people and to run it. God delights to see us living healthy and, and godly in this world, enjoying creation and trees and plants and animals and all that kind of great stuff. But because we're sort of given authority over the world, when we fall, when we, when we sin, it's like the world falls with us. So imagine it's like this, the world and creation, animals, all that is attached to humans. And when humans jump off a cliff, the world falls off the cliff too. So I think one of the lessons for this, one of the, the reasons why the flood would affect all of creation or all of the earth and not just not just man, is to show us that God can and will judge the world. Like to show us the extremity of the fact that God really is going to judge sin. He's really going to deal with the sins that we've committed. And it's no joke. And so he has this like sample in the past, this time when he showed his wrath so that we will know it's no joke when you stand before God on judgment day. But there's also another thing, which is to show us how bad sin is, to show us that sin affects everything around us. I think this is an important lesson. Often when we do something wrong, we think, hey, I'm, I'm doing something wrong, but I'm I'm just affecting me. Like, who, I'm, who am I hurting other than me? But sin never really works that way. Whenever I commit sin, I'm always impacting everyone else around me in some way. I impact the world around me in some way. And so I think that the flood shows that. That, that our sin impacts and affects everyone around us in a big way. When you do something wrong, it hurts other people. That's a life lesson, you know, we all need to learn. And then the, the, the final reason is this, and this is the good news. This is where it gets beautiful and wonderful and very hopeful, is that just like creation falls with us, like it's attached to us and we fall off a cliff. So when Jesus saves us and he redeems us and he raises us back up, he also raises creation back up. So creation has hope, creation has a future, and there's a verse for this in the in the New Testament, and it's in Romans. So let me read it to us, and let's consider it thoughtfully. It's going to be a bit of a challenge um, for for some the language here, but I think that the lesson is very 
wonderful. Um, it says here that the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Or another way to put this is the, the world around us experienced things like the flood, um, death, um, hardships and pains and, and, and like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes, that sort of stuff happens to the world around us. But it was, it was because of our sin ultimately, but it was subject, subjected in hope. It experiences this in hope. Why? Because the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Let me, let me say this in my own words that I'll real simplify it for us is that just like creation falls with man, creation rises with man. So that now we're waiting on the day. Jesus, when he redeems us, he doesn't just buy back us. He buys back all of the world, all of the animals and all of the things. The whole universe is, is brought back into right relationship with God. So we look forward to a day when everything will be remade and the universe, creation, everything will be better than it, than it ever has been. We get this in 2 Peter, talks about this. It says, keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So just like we can look back and see the cost of sin, so we can look, you know, with, with the flood and all that, we can look forward and see the incredible promises of God in that creation is going to be renewed. It'll be perfect. It'll be uh, humans, even animals, I believe, right? In, in the new creation, it, you know, existing perfectly and wonderfully and without any sin or corruption or pain or any of those sorts of things. So I hope that answers your question and hello to Miss Fuller's sixth grade class. I, I, I hope that that was been, that's been fruitful for you. I'm going to go to your guys' questions now from the live chat today. Lindsay Kelsall has a question, says, does every knee bow, that phrase, every knee bow, does that refer to each person when they die and come before God or mankind collectively at the return of Jesus? If it's the latter, does this mean unbelievers will be forced to do this? Thanks again for all you do. Lindsay, you're very welcome. It is, I'm honored and privileged to get to do this. So um, let's find the verse that talks about this and let's look at it in context. That That's my pattern. That's my habit. And you all hopefully, you know, you see this. Um, it's not like I'm doing anything unique here. Um, in fact, it's not unique. That's why I want to point it out. It's just that simple thing where you, you go to the Bible and you just read the verse in context. So here's one of the verses that talks about this. It's in Philippians 2. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here, the every knee is actually, it's really broad. It's not even limited to living beings on earth. So that would make me think that it's not talking about the second coming of Jesus, because that, in that sense, we're thinking of um, him touching down on the earth, him showing up, people seeing him. Not that nobody will bow then. I'm not suggesting that because many will. Um, and that may be the, th the event that sort of triggers this every knee bowing. But the every knee goes beyond that. It's every knee, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. So we're talking here about like uh, angelic beings and, and saved individuals, those who are living on the earth, and then under the earth, those who are unsaved or, or, or evil beings, right? This is, this is the, uh, the terminology, the, the description of where they are. So that being said, since this is universal, this every knee bowing um, and every tongue confessing, I think that it is it is not voluntary. It is it is forced, right? Like in a good sense, it's like you will have to admit the lordship of Christ, whether you choose to, whether you desire to or not. They'll confess that Jesus is Lord. Some take this to mean that everyone's going to get saved one day. They take this confession to be a statement of faith, like personal trust in Christ. I, I think that that misses the context 
um, of Philippians 2, and and it skips out on a whole lot of scripture that talks about that topic. But um, but yeah, this, in my view, is speaking of a future time when in the, okay, I'm going to use a fancy theological term, the eschaton, <laughs> the end times, um, that, 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 is, that is the time when, when um, every knee will bow. Philippians 2 does not speak to the exact moment of this happening. It only speaks to how broadly it happens, heaven, earth, and under the earth. The other scriptures speak about a resurrection. I mean, Revelation speaks about a resurrection of, of the saved and a resurrection of the unsaved and how they will, be, they will stand before Christ and be judged by him. And so that, to me, seems to be a good moment to, deter, to say, hey, that's when you'll, when you'll bow. But these resurrections take place at different times in Revelation, depending on your interpretation of Revelation. I think they take place at different times. So my final point here, hope I'm not being too confusing, is that um, Philippians tells us the scope, every knee will bow, and Revelation gives us different moments when this takes place. It happens in more than one time. We have the saved bowing both in this life and at the resurrection. We have the unsaved finally bowing when they're resurrected for judgment. And I, I think that uh, that's when it hits universal status. And there's several bowings that happen before then, such as at the second coming. I hope that helps. All right. We'll go. Oh, I haven't done my counter. That was question number two. We're going to question number three now. And uh, thanks, guys, for joining me. Um, in case you didn't know, I'm Mike Winger. This is Moxie, my cat. One of my cats. My other cat, Mika, is actually... she's You can't, you can't see her, but she's... You kind of see the gray lump up there. She's hiding up there. Nobody. Ever, she never shows herself. She's shy. Um, and I had the screen too small. But you couldn't see it anyway. But um, the uh, this this is part of my ministry online. I I teach. I do verse by verse studies. I do topical things like I'm in the middle of a research project right now on women in ministry. I'm going to do a big teaching on that probably next year. <laughs> I'm working on it, guys. I'm I'm slaving away. I promise. And, um, and I also do these questions, 20 questions every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. But by way of announcement, there is no question uh, next Friday or the following. There's no question time. So December 3rd will be the next one. I'm going to be at ETS next week, the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. I'll be there next week. And the week after that's Thanksgiving. And we don't do the, the Q&A on that Friday I'm with family. So uh, I will see you guys in December after today. All right, question number three. I Love Wayne's World says, a pastor told me that it was a sin to watch Star Wars and Dragon Ball Z and listen to rock music because they are, quote, pagan. I'm willing to give these up if they are, but how do I know if it's a sin or, or legalism? Okay, first off, I want to say the most important thing that I heard in all you said there, I Love Wayne's World, is, and that's his username. I'm not just throwing out Praise of Wayne's World randomly. <laughs> um uh, but uh, I think the most important thing you said, from my opinion, is that you're willing to give these up if there is sin. That's the heart that you want to approach this with. You want to say, God, ah, whatever it is, if you don't, if, if you say it's sin, I'll give it up. Whatever it is, that's my starting point. But now I'll ask the second question. Now that my heart is prepared to submit and be obedient to God no matter the cost. Second question, are they actually sin? Um, so in my view, um, when I, I'll just be super straightforward with you. When I hear someone say, Star Wars, Dragon Ball Z, and rock music are pagan, and they just give it that broad brush. I think that they're not thinking rationally about things. I'm, I'm just being straightforward with you guys. I, I, I'm sorry if I'm offending you now. I don't mean to offend you, but I really do want you to know I think you're not thinking rationally. So if you were to define pagan, like get that word and give it a definition, it would have to be kind of like the word Christian. It has certain core, core doctrines 
right? Pagan would involve the worship of pagan gods. Pagan would, would, would involve religious pagan commitments. Um, Star Wars isn't pagan. I mean, it's possible that you think Star Wars statements about the Force are meant to actually be statements about reality. I don't think that's the case. I, don't, I think most of us realize that's not the case. So it, this is this is fantasy realm. This isn't this is in the realm of fantasy. It's so pagan is believing these things are true about these pagan gods, Star Wars, and the Force, and the Force be with you, and all these phrases. Um, while it can be a problem for people who start naively thinking these things are somehow true, it's just fantasy. So I I, I would not call that pagan. Um, now you could say that if you did start to believe some of these Star Wars teachings about the forces in all of us and all the, and it has like a will and there's a light and dark side, well, this turns into kind of a weird pantheism, right? All of creation is, is deified, as well as this sort of dualism, the spiritual dualism of like there's, there's evil and good in God and they are balanced out and they're intended to be balanced. This is one of the craziest things in the Star Wars universe is that evil and good are supposed to be in balance. <laughs> Like, we've got 50% good and 50% evil, and that's how it's supposed to be. Like, that's that's weird, right? Um, and, of course, the whole idea of the Force changes and morphs over time. The, the current version, like, I'm, I'm a Star Wars fan. The current version is, is different than it was in Luke Skywalker's day. And so it, it shifts and changes and all that. But I see it purely as entertainment, purely as disconnected from reality, not as preaching things. If you get If you think it's preaching things, you probably shouldn't watch it. Um... Dragon Ball Z, I don't know enough about. I tried watching some Dragon Ball Z. I just couldn't get into it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I remember watching some random episode years ago because the students in youth ministry were really into Dragon Ball Z. And I was like, it was like 23 minutes of a cartoon of a guy flying, screaming on his way to a fight. He never gets there. Nothing ever happens. And the episode's over. And I was like, Pagan, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to answer that question. I suspect Dragon Ball Z leans more into the realm of fantasy than in the in the realm of, of, of pagan things. Like you, like as if there's a pagan religion that has the beliefs that are in Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball Z is promoting those. That, that I don't suspect. Rock music is a genre of music. This is the third category you gave me. Uh, rock music is a genre of music. Genres aren't pagan. That, as a musician, <laughs> let me tell you right here. Okay, that was like a an E string. Okay, that's not godly. It's not pagan. It's a sound. Okay, genres aren't inherently pagan. Some genres tend to lean towards carnal things. So death metal and heavy metal and stuff like that. There's even Christian bands that do these things. But those scenes, and I know from experience, those scenes tend to involve a lot of carnality. Right? So like, that's, that's a reality that anybody who's seen those scenes up close should be able to admit. And, you know, music that's, you know, focused upon rage, that can tend to be unhealthy for people, not because it's pagan, but because it's focused on carnal things. So that can be a problem. Um, but I don't want to have too broad of a brush when I say this. It's definitely a greater temptation in those areas. But rock music is just a genre, rock music. That's a very broad genre, too. To say that it's pagan because of the genre doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I think Psalm 150 implies that we want to use music to the glory of God, of all stripes and all kinds. But I'm not one of those who naively says, go listen to Star Wars, watch Star Wars, watch Dragon Ball Z, and listen to all the music you want. Who cares? Don't think. Instead, I want to say, 
you need to you need the ability to discern what's right and wrong in the music or movies you watch and you need the ability to have like somewhere on your radar where you say i'm not watching that that's inappropriate and if you don't have those things if you're just so in love with liberty that you have no wisdom there's a problem there. So those are my my honest opinions. You guys, listen, I speak to you now as, as, as not as like I'm your pastor telling you what you have to do. I'm a brother in Christ. Consider the wisdom, the thoughts I gave you just now as a brother who has an opinion that you can consider, weigh as you work through your own thoughts on these issues. I, I really do mean that sincerely. Uh, I did not give you a ruling. I just gave you my thoughts for what it's worth. Number four, follower of Christ forever says, what do you know about Nathan Finocchio? Um, is that Pinocchio, Pinocchio's cousin? I don't know. I've never heard of him. <laughs> my daughter, uh, follower of Christ says, my daughter was invited to a youth event where he is the main preacher, but I'm not sure if I should ever, if I should let her attend. Greetings from Canada. So yeah, I, I've never heard of him. Um, I totally get the concern there. Having done youth ministry for many years, there are plenty of youth camps and events where We've we've had camps where I bring them to a camp and it's a camp that I think is going to be solid and good. And afterwards, I'm gathering with the students, my my students, not everybody because I'm not responsible for all of them, but to like undo some of the stuff that that weird guy just said at the camp. <laughs> so um, so I, I fully understand your concern. I've never heard of Nathan Finocchio. He might be great. He might be weird. He might be a mixed bag. God give you wisdom on that. Um, I wish I could help you more. I'd recommend looking for some of his, his teachings online. Look for something he's taught online and you can get a feel for him and then move forward from there. Um, yeah. We'll go to number five. Randy of Loxley says, after the white throne judgment and the second death, this is in the book of Revelation, he's using terms that talk about things that happen there at the end of time here, or I should say at the changing of time. Um so after the white throne judgment and the second death, Revelation 21.10, where do the sinners come from that they are kept outside the new Jerusalem? Revelation 22.15, love your ministry. This is an interesting question. I think a lot of us, um, and by the way, thanks, Randy, for loving my ministry. I love it too <laughs> for different reasons, I'm sure, but um, I'm grateful to get to, to do this. So this gives me pause too. When I re read Revelation, I read this and I go, wait, what? Um, so let me back up a little bit and we'll just say there's a discussion of like, the the location the eternal location of the righteous of the saved and here they are they experience these things and you would say these these might be literal or they might be symbolic i'm not going to try and weigh in on that but here's the description of some of those things bless are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates um i'll just weigh in a little bit Forgive me, I, have to, I can't help myself. Um, those who wash their robes seems to be clearly symbolic about forgiveness, okay? That they may have the right to the tree of life. Um, this, remember there was a tree of life in the garden. There's also one described in Revelation in the new, in the new Jerusalem, in, in the city that we will inhabit for eternity when heaven meets earth. The point is that we're enjoying eternal life now. Um, that they may enter the city by the gates. So they're welcomed. They're, they're citizens, they belong in the city. Verse 15 then describes another group of people that are, quote, outside, right? So outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this, this picture of a city where we're living and we can co go in and out of the city, right, where we enjoy creation, we come and enjoy the presence of God. That's the picture in Revelation 22 here. 
Does that then mean that there's this group of, of unsaved people that just live on the planet Earth outside the city and they're allowed to meander and roam around the Earth, but they can't come in? And I think that um, that is, that's what my Western eyes see when I read verse 15, but I don't think that's what the original readers would have, would have seen when they read it. So my opinion would be this, that when uh, in, a, in a Jewish context and with the idea of banishment or not being part of the kingdom, that's the things that are weighing behind the term outside in verse 15. Uh, I'll show, I'll put it on your screen again. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters. And dogs here is a symbolism for those that don't belong, uh, uncleanness. Um, so when it says outside, it doesn't mean physically outside the gates. There's a group of people that fit this description. I think all it means is barred from being part of the city are people that meet this description. So they're not necessarily outside nearby. They're just not allowed to be part of this experience. So that's where verse 15, I think, stumbled me as a, at a younger age. But as I read things like um, what it means to be in or out of the kingdom, and Jesus' description of being in or out of the kingdom, and then I tie that in to Revelation or the Old Testament description of being outside, like they'll be outside. These are people who aren't part of the group, aren't part of the kingdom, they're not people who are located nearby, just outside the walls. That would be my interpretation of that. Of that. Um, so all it's saying is they're not in the city. I'll put it that way. Not experiencing the unity and love that happens there because of their choices. Okay, we have all 20 questions loaded. I'm going to be going through them one at a time. Answer, uh, giving you the best answers I can. But if, if you're still wanting to put a question in, you'll have to come back on December 3rd. I know how lame that is. I'm sorry. We just, I just... I cannot possibly answer all the stuff that we get all the time. So we do what we can. Hopefully it helps you. All right, number six, Elizabeth Knowles says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, when Paul says you can get weak, sick, or die if taking the Last Supper in an unworthy manner, what sins specifically are punishable by death? Okay, wow, this is a heavy, heavy question. Let's start as is wise to do by looking at the passage itself. I'm going to back up. Read it a little bit, give a little bit of context. So um, here Paul is talking about communion services. You, you say the Last Supper. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I don't usually use the term the Last Supper because it's not my last, but it, is, it does harken back to Jesus' Last Supper. So it is connected to that. But he Paul talks about the, um, the instruction for having communion. He says, I received from the Lord, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice the teaching that Paul focuses on here is that the cup and the bread represent the body and blood of Jesus that was offered for you. This is going to be important in a second because what Paul says next is often misunderstood. But his focus is the cup and bread mean something about the body and blood of Jesus. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? This is an often, I think, misunderstood passage that's taken to mean that a person has to be holy 
if they're going to take communion. They have to be in a, like a, a good, righteous kind of condition if they're going to take communion. And I think there's a confusion here. Paul is only talking so far about recognizing the body and the blood of the Lord. And the Corinthians, they were not doing this in a very specific way, but we'll, we'll read on. He says, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup after examining himself. Um, and we've sometimes take this to mean like, hey, before you partake of communion, confess any sin. Okay, I, I would agree that that's a good thing to do. Before you partake of communion, confess any sin. How about before you pray, confess any sin? Before you get out of your bed, you confess any sin. Before you worship the Lord, before you study the word, before you go and interact with friends, you confess any sin. So that's just a, a good rule, period. I think the self-examination is actually in this context meant to tell us, make sure that your manner of partaking of communion is giving honor to the to the bread and the, and the cup as the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean the literal transfiguration stuff the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but that doesn't mean we reduce this to like, oh, it's just bread, it's just cup, it's just wine, it's just juice. It's not, that that would be irreverent to, to the Lord. Then he goes on and says, and fills in more, if anyone eats, uh, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, notice they're discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. They're They're not paying attention to the meaning of this. See, the Corinthians were turning this, they didn't have just a cup and a cracker. They had a feast and they were turning it into like kind of a gluttonous event where those who arrived early would drink and eat too much. And those who arrived late didn't have anything to eat. So it was kind of like a potluck, but gone sort of like selfish and ugly. And, and he's like, you're not discerning. This is about the body and blood of Christ. This is about the fellowship we have with each other. It's not just about you getting, getting full. So if you eat and drink without discerning the body, without recognizing Jesus, this is, this is, um, um, What's the term we're looking for? I know it's unholy, basically. <laughs> it's wrong. Uh, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, this is this gets surprising to us. He's like, hey, some of you are eating and drinking and you're, and, and you're having a communion service, but you were ignoring the body and blood of Christ. You're just self-seeking and carnal. You're actually drinking judgment to yourself. So this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The, the reason why they were um, weak, ill, and died is related to them not acknowledging the body and blood of Christ. Okay, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Paul gives a, a, a statement here that the communion service maybe shouldn't be used as a giant meal for people that are, that are really hungry. It should be used, focused on the body and blood of Christ. That's, that's part of the ruling that comes there. So um, now I'm going to go to your question and then I'm going to give you my interpretation of the weak and ill and, and many have died. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. You say, um, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, when Paul says, you can get weak, sick, or die if taking the Last Supper in an unworthy manner, what sins specifically are punishable by death? Actually, the only sin that's mentioned in Paul's passage there is that of um, not, not exalting you know, the communion moment for what it truly is, not acknowledging the body and blood of Christ, but using it as a selfish means of just getting full. In other words... You're doing the opposite of what Jesus says. He goes, don't, don't labor for bread which perishes, but labor for that which gives everlasting life. They just want food instead of the spiritual nourishment of God. 
Okay, so that's the sin. That's the sin. It's just that carnal thing. But you say, what sins are punishable by death? Actually, he says, for this reason, many of you are weak, sick, and some of you have died. I don't know if the weakness and sickness and death is caused by the bad attitude of communion or if perhaps the lack of healing when one gets weak, sick, or dies, the lack of healing is because of their carnal activities. So this is a puzzle to me. I'm personally not sure if Paul is saying you ate communion wrong, God's punishing you with sickness, even death, or if he's saying your, your unspiritual attitudes in your gatherings is drinking judgment upon you and God is not healing you as a result. So that, that just is unclear to me. But the only sin mentioned is that of unworthy attitude towards communion. And um, I'll just leave it there because that's all, that's all I got for you. God, God give us wisdom in how we apply those things. Number seven, Christy Dunaway says, if the Holy Spirit gives tongues, how is it that anyone uses it against the will of God if the Spirit only does what the Father wills? For example, misusing it in church services. Um, so, the there's, okay, there's a few different possible answers to this question, Christy, that we can consider. One would be that uh, tongues is, in my opinion, one of the easiest gifts to fake. Because as long as there's no interpretation, you could just spout gibberish and nobody around you, at least in a charismatic environment, would know the difference of whether you were speaking in really in tongues or just spouting gibberish. So there's a sense in which it would be like, well, that would be very easy to fake. And there wouldn't be something easy to like prove, demonstrate whether that thing was real or not. Um, okay. That's one of the reasons why, um, how someone could use it if it's against the will of God. But another possibility is that tongues, and, and, and I'm very open to this, is that tongues itself is an ability you have and not that every single moment of speaking tongues is a divine utterance, meaning, um, meaning that each word you're saying is from the Lord. So somebody who, let's say, has a gift of speaking in tongues, and they can do this in their own private connection with God. They can, they can perhaps, here's the theory, they can engage in this as they choose, as they will. And so then that enables them to do so in a disorderly manner or at the wrong moment. Now, the interpretation is not going to come probably unless it was according to the will of God. And on this hypothesis, that makes sense why Paul's like, hey, if there's no interpretation, keep it to yourself and God. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you can speak in tongues between you and God, but without interpretation, we don't see the Holy Spirit using this for the church right now. So now is not the time. So in that sense, it would be like a like a muscle you can you can engage when you choose, blesses your walk with God. Without interpretation, that's kind of the signal that the Holy Spirit is not directing that for the whole church at the moment. There would be my my thoughts on that. Number eight, Folky says, how to deal with the urge to ask forgiveness for nearly every intrusive thought, feeling, and temptation. If I'm asking out of anxiety, am I asking in vain? I don't want to treat sin lightly. Um, I hear you, Folky. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know the, the best answer to give you here. I'll give you some thoughts I hope you find encouraging. Um, uh, I don't see an example in scripture of people asking forgiveness moment to moment like that, right? Like, like where people stop mid-sentence discuss and they go, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And then they t they're walking and they think something, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have thought that. So I don't really see in Scripture an example of individuals asking forgiveness in that moment-to-moment-to-moment -to -moment -to -moment 
sort of way. And I think that it could be actually, what you're describing could actually be unhealthy. Um, there are plenty of believers who do go around like, and they sin and they never, they never ask for forgiveness. Sunday comes around, they go to church that particular week, they go to church and now they feel the weight of sin and they ask for forgiveness and, and there's like a restoration that ha that's happening there in their, in their relationship, you know, with the Lord, the, the health of that relationship. And, and that's probably more common. But what you're describing seems to me to be along the eight, along the, um, the level of needing to know the grace of Christ that covers you constantly needing to know that you are under the grace and the covering of God at all times and that the thoughts that you struggle with and that the things that you deal with are probably the common things that everybody deals with to some degree or another. And so that you need to like have a confidence before the Lord that says, God, I, I know I'm never perfect. I know I don't live a day of perfection, but I also know that I'm not constantly on your naughty list every time I have a stray thought or I say something I shouldn't have said quite that way. And so just for your, for the sake of your own health, I would say like many other believers need to lean towards repenting or, or asking for forgiveness more often. You probably need to lean towards trusting in God's grace moment to moment um, and just not thinking that you're disqualified in your, in your walk with the Lord every time something happens and realize that he has a sustaining grace in your life, right? That's really important to know. So you might read, look through uh, Ephesians 1 through 3. So I always recommend people read Ephesians 1 through 3 slowly, carefully, methodically to understand the grace in Christ that we stand in daily. I'm just in this grace at all times. Or look at Hebrews where it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we have a high priest, you know, who, who intercedes for us. These things are super valuable. So, All right, here's an anonymous question that says, how should we approach a situation where one spouse is doing something potentially harmful to the health of the family yet won't quit? For example, vaping inside the home. Um, so how should you approach the situation? One spouse, I, I guess the first question I would ask is like, hey, um, what's your relationship to this one spouse, right? So like if, I'm, if I just know them sort of in a distant way, it's gonna be harder to approach them. If I'm closer to them, I can approach them with that relationship. So let's say that you're a spouse. Let's say they're your spouse. Like you're the, say it's the husband and you're the wife or the other way around. It's the wife doing it and you're the husband. If you're married to them, you have a special role where you you need to be able to, when things are important, to be able to confront them on those issues and talk to them about it. This is this is part of that role. So, um, you know, you should approach them in that case. Uh, depending on how distant you are from the person, you may or may not go meddle in their business. I think there's a lot of wisdom that just has to be weighed in there. But um, potentially harmful to the health of the family and they won't quit. Like, say, vaping inside the home. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean that. I don't know the statistics on vaping. It seems obviously unhealthy. <laughs> like, you're, like, like I don't need a medical doctor to tell me that vaping is going to cause long-term problems for people who do it a lot. Um, I've just, yeah, lived long enough to know that. But, but the, um, but the way you approach them, I think, is is a big deal here. And so, how can you, not, not pander to them, right? Like. Not pre not play games where you pretend like you, like you you know. I just want you to know I really appreciate you. You're so great in so many ways, and I have to think of seven more nice things to say before I bring you this one hard thing. Um, I don't think you want to necessarily do that, but I, I would recommend being super super straightforward and honest, in the sense that you just um, you tell them what your real heart and concerns are. Uh, but, but telling them your heart before you tell them the issue can help. Can be a positive thing. I love you. I I, I respect you. I care for you, and 
I have something that I'm concerned about. Can I tell you about it? Right? And sometimes a little question like that, asking permission to tell them about it, can be very disarming because you got their permission, right? You're not you're not forcing something upon them at that point. I think that can be a good tactic. Can I tell you about this thing? I have something I'm really concerned about. Do it when they're calm. Do it when they're not in a hurry. Do it when they didn't just have an argument. Do it when they're not in front of all their family, if you can avoid it. Do it privately. Do it graciously. I think that Galatians gives us some advice on this. And um, here's the passage. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, here's the, here's the routine. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There are three things here about restoring them, and they're all about the person doing the restoring. So if I'm the one correcting you, I have to I have to be spiritual. Like you who are spiritual. So don't be, if you're an unspiritual person, you're going to not correct people very well. I have to restore, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So immediately, even though I'm feeling like I might want to say it harshly, I'm going to try and do it softly. I'm going to try and soften everything I'm about to say to you. I'm going to do this with a gentle spirit. Not lie, not deceive just gently, right? Instead of harshly. And keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted because when you go to approach someone else, when you go to correct somebody else, that is exactly the moment when you will fall into hypocritical sin, judging in, a, in the negative way as opposed to the positive way. Um, that's a temptation for us. So every one of us should you know, follow Galatians 6.1 in that regard. Number 10, Kevin Lionel says, regarding Paul's vision of heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, why can't Paul tell us what he saw? Did he see something bad? Why do Paul and God have to be secretive and hide things? <laughs> I, I sense frustration potentially in your in your uh, question there, Kevin. Um, so let's look at the passage, 2 Corinthians 12. And he says, um, so Paul does something interesting here for those who aren't familiar with it. He, he describes himself. He's talking about himself. But he says, I know a man. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, but he's talking about himself, but he says, I know a man. And the reason why he's doing this is because Paul in the letter, he's partly talking about his qualifications. Here's why I'm qualified to be an apostle and to, and to do the ministry I'm doing. And he feels embarrassed. He feels like a fool for talking about his qualifications. So he distances himself a little bit by saying, I know a man. And he's speaking of himself. This is so different than how some people recount their heavenly visions. So, um, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Um, so the, the heavens, multiple heavens, the terminology here, it's not Mormonism. <laughs> it's, it's talking about heaven being God's throne. And then, then um, the other two most likely here, and I have spent time researching this issue, right? The other two being like the sky, the birds fly in the midst of the heavens, um, and then further out like stars, uh, that area of heaven. So he was caught to the spiritual location where God is, right? He was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Okay, this partly answers your question a little bit, Kevin, is that perhaps Paul doesn't want to tell you too much because he, he's not sure he understands what he saw. And so he doesn't want to confuse you. Um, it's, a, it's a wise teacher who doesn't comment too much on things he doesn't understand that well. Um, and uh, hopefully I walk in that wisdom more often than not. So that might be part of it is that he just literally doesn't understand. So he doesn't know what to say about all this stuff. He says, I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. He says it again. I don't even know if it was in the body. Or out of the, I don't even know. So obviously he's a little fuzzy on exactly the details. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. That's really strange sounding, right? But he heard things. There are things he heard, not what he saw, what he heard with his ears, which he can't say a man may not utter. 
What does that mean? Well, I mean, if he told you what it meant, then he'd basically be telling you the thing he can't tell you, right? So there's there's something going on there. Um, and uh, there's other translations put it differently. Look at the New King James, um, verse 4. He says, he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Inexpressible words. That's different. And not lawful means it's like inappropriate. It's wrong for me to say, it, but inexpressible is different. Inexpressible makes it sound like I heard stuff. I just literally couldn't communicate to you with words. There are things that, that I experienced there that I, I could not put into words for you. That's what that sounds like, inexpressible. But it's not lawful for a man to utter. It implies something else, implies something, something inappropriate. It could be that if he tried to put into words, it would be inadequate and it would end up being offensive because he would wrongly represent heaven. What he saw was too glorious for him to try to describe it. And this would be like me um, describing for you a sunset. It's like, well, no matter what I say, it's never going to do justice to a sunset, right? There, there's a sense in which I, at least me, not not having that linguistic skill, you know, it would be, it would be inexpressible. It'd be wrong for me to try to lower the description down to that. So th this may be part of what's happening there is that sort of idea. Yeah. It's it, it, but, but back to your question is like, why is it that, that even God himself hides certain things? Um, Jesus, uh, we have several possible reasons for this. Again, my caveat always, when you say, why won't God do this for me? That's always a dangerous territory because we can, we can go from asking thoughtful questions to um, childishly judging God. Very quickly, we can move that way. So let's do it from the asking thoughtful question side for a second and say this. Um, uh, some things we're not ready to see. There's things we, we simply can't comprehend. And I know that sounds annoying, but think about a seven-year-old asking you about like marriage. And there's parts of you that are like, kiddo, you know, you just, you gotta, you'll understand when you're older. Or your kid is five years old and they're like, mom, I don't know why you have to go to work. Just stay, let's go to Disneyland today. Can't we just go to Disneyland? Why do you have to go to work? And you're like, I tried to explain it. I told him 10 times, like, you'll get it when you're older, right? And it's not until they're buying their own toilet paper that they understand. <laughs> and and that, that's part of reality, right? Like there's a sense in which when I'm in God's presence, there are things I will comprehend that even if he told them to me now, I wouldn't. Right, like now he tells me, I work all things together for good to those who love me. And I'm like, I trust you, but I don't like understand it. But I trust you, but I don't really understand. When I'm in his presence and he wipes every tear away, I will understand that fully. God says, I'm going to judge the world. And some of us think, well, that judgment seems harsh. And he goes, look, I told you sin was bad. I showed you how bad it was. I have my son die on the cross for the sin. I tell the world they're in rebellion against me. And then I judge the world. And you look at me and you say, you're too harsh, God. Well, but one day will come when we'll stand in his very presence. We'll see his holiness. We'll watch his righteous judgment. And we will approve. Even though you we may not think you will, you will approve. You will go, whoa, I, I didn't see it from that perspective, God. Now I know you're right. So our limitations are part of the problem here. That, uh, that limit our ability to receive things God has to say. There's other stuff too, I'm sure, but those are at least a few things. Number 11, Debbie Van Leuven has a question. Here, I'll, Debbie, this is this is Moxie for you. She's curled up into a, a pure ball of fur. And here's her day. <laughs> yeah, she's cute. All right, so Debbie says, in the book of Job, his children were killed apart from his, a part of his trials, as part of his trials. Sorry. At the end, he was blessed with more children 
this was this has always bothered me. Why does it appear that children are disposable like that? Um, so, Debbie, I, I, I think that the conclusion you have that children are disposable is not meant is not what Job, the book of Job, is trying to give you. That is not the conclusion that it's trying to give you at all. These children are not said to be disposable. And, and part of the weight of the first part of Job is that they're not disposable. Because if kids are disposable, why is Job so distraught over the things that have happened that he wants to die? That was like not, I mean, he didn't actually kill himself, right? But, he, but that's how he feels. He's like, I just want to die now. I wish I was never born. That's because these kids are not disposable. They're so valuable. They're so precious. They're so important. But. To think that having even more children and having an experiencing relationship with them and health and their life and the vitality of that, that that wouldn't bring comfort to you after losing a child, that would be that would be to go too far. So they're not disposable, but certainly, um, you know, when you lose a child and you have another child, that other child has a special place for you. And that seems to be what we're getting in Job. We also have... Um, even in Job, there's the hope of the resurrection. And so it's not as though these, he has no hope of seeing these kids again in the future. Job speaks about eternity. He's like, even though my, my flesh will, will, will rot, right? Even though I will die, even though this flesh is going dispo to be disposed of, yet, and this is interesting, he says, in my flesh, I will see God. This is one of those interesting moments in Job. Um, let me take you to the passage because it, it's, it's something I think worth looking at. Um, so here it is, Job 19.29. He says, After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall, I shall see God, whom I shall see myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. He wants to stand before God, right? But he's like, after my body dies, there's a resurrection where I will have a new body and I will see God. So the children aren't disposable, like, goodbye, who cares? There is a hope for the future of them, but certainly... Uh, Job was greatly comforted by the future children he had after having lost his previous kids. So th that that's all I see there, and I wouldn't go beyond that. Number 12. Um, this is from Anonymous. Question. Uh, it says, is it man-centered thinking to say that Jesus died for everyone, but it is only applied to you if slash when you accept it? Now, just so you guys know, that is something I do say. Jesus, I, I would say this. So I'm obviously going to disagree, but let's see if I can make a good case for my disagreement here. Um, so I would say Jesus did die for everyone, but that it's only applied if and when you accept it. So that your follow-up question is, are we the ones who give the cross its power? i like to hear your thoughts on this. Um, so I, I think the confusion here is thinking that your acceptance of Christ is what is giving the cross its power. So you see, this is the subtle change here. This is, I'm going to call equivocation. Hey, you have to accept Jesus. You have to receive Christ. You have to trust in Jesus to receive the benefits of the cross. And then someone turns and says, so you're saying the cross has no power unless I accept it. And we're like, no, the cross has all the power it has, but there's a condition set by God by which you have to receive it by faith. And if you choose not to, you don't receive it. That doesn't drain the cross of its power. So, for instance, let's say that my wallet has lots of power. I don't, I don't even know where my wallet is. Let's say that my wallet has lots of power. There's a million dollars in my wallet. And I go to you and I say, and let's say your name is Bob. And I go, Bob, I will give you a million dollars if you will believe in my power to give you a million dollars or something like that. And then Bob says, 
I don't believe in your power to give me a million dollars, Mike. Now, has his unbelief taken my power away? No. I still have the million dollars. The, the offer was still there. The ability is still there. The capacity is there. The only thing it's done is it's disqualified him from receiving the benefits of my amazing wallet power. My bad analogy aside, I think that, I think that that's how I would say. The, the equivocation is thinking that me denying the cross actually removes the power of the cross. That seems silly. It's a condition God has set. You have to believe. And if you don't believe... You don't get the benefit, but the power is there all along. There's my answer. You knew I was going to try to defend it somehow, but I think that that works. Becky says, Becky Grant says, Hello, Pastor Mike. You have been a huge help. Thank you for your ministry. I'm very, very happy to hear that, Becky. That really means the world to me. Um, I want to ask if you have any biblical guidance on coming back to your Christ-like identity when you've fallen into doubt. Um, well, I have my own season of doubt and there's a few things that that I would I would suggest um uh you know if you have intellectual serious and significant intellectual concerns now everybody thinks they have serious and significant intellectual concerns but but there's something I've done that has helped me differentiate when you do or when you don't if you can write out these concerns and they're specific and you and you can number them here's my three top concerns and then you can tell your, and you can ask this question, if these three concerns were answered, would I become a Christian? And if your answer is no, then those aren't your real concerns. These are your excuses. Something else is going on that you're not admitting to yourself. Um, so, but if, if they're really there, okay, get through and then get the answers to those. Okay. But I'm assuming you've gone through the process of doing this because you say you want advice on coming back to your Christ-like identity when you've fallen into doubt. So the doubt was the past, I think, right? If not, if you have like, it's this issue, boom, this one issue stands out. This is like the crooks. And if I could resolve this, my faith and trust in Christ would go way up. Then resolve that issue, chase that issue down. If that's not the case, perhaps it's more emotional based, which is what happens. It's happened to me. My encouragement to you then is to realize a few things. One, you do not have to fix your heart in order to fix your eyes upon Christ. You do not have to fix your feelings in order to have faith in Jesus. Faith is a choice you can make even when you are dragging your heart along from a distance. Faith is a choice you make. I choose to trust you. I choose to believe in you, Lord. I have these feelings. I have this doubt. But the thing you want to tell yourself is my feelings of doubt are not disqualifying me because I'm still choosing faith in the midst of that doubt. And there's and you're like, Mike, you're saying lots of stuff. Is there scripture that says you can have faith in the middle of doubt? Um, yeah, there is. And... It's Mark 9, 24. So let's look at this passage. This is beautiful. This is be my encouragement if someone's still walking through that season. Um, there's a boy. He has like this demon possession issue going on and they're unable to, to fix it. The disciples are unable to fix it. In verse 21, Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And then here, Mark 9, 22 and it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, notice he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus, he challenges this. Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. In other words, I can do it. The question is, will you trust me? Will you believe me? But here's what to me is the most beautiful and 
And one of the things I love about scripture is that it will show us like the complexity of human life. Human life is complicated. Sometimes things are just hard to wrap your head around and hard around. And so this is hitting the complexity of faith and doubt and how sometimes they're happening at the same time. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, and here's his answer to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. This is so beautiful. The Holy Spirit knew that you would be struggling with belief and unbelief at the same time and that you needed scripture to help tell you that you could, in the middle of that, trust in Jesus and it would be enough. So Jesus answers the man who admits openly that he believes and doesn't believe at the same time, but he's choosing belief. He's like, I believe, that's my choice. Help my unbelief, that's the thing rattling around in my head. And Jesus saw that a crowd came running together and he rebuked the unclean spirit, right? And he, and he commands it out. The boy was healed. The boy was, was, was absolutely and totally healed. What does that mean? Let me, let me break it down in case anybody missed it because it's so great. Jesus, can you heal this child of mine? I will if you believe because all things are possible. Oh, but my belief is all kind of messed up, Jesus. I choose to believe, but I also have this unbelief. Help. I heal. What does that mean? That means that this guy's weird belief and unbelief mixed together was enough faith to meet Jesus's requirement so that Jesus brought healing. What does that say about you? I believe, Lord, I trust you, but I'm struggling with emotional doubt, psychological doubt, some intellectual questions I don't have resolved, but I do choose to trust you. Is that enough? And the answer is going to be yes, because the choice of faith is that central, that central. There are some out there who say that Christians, if they have any doubt at all, then they're not really Christians. That is spiritually abusive and unbiblical. Um, I'm happy to say. <laughs> All right. Number 14, uh, Fox.Dude says, can people be tricked into hell? Such as people born into false religions or North Korea. If so, how is that fair? Um, so I'm going to answer this as like, say it's a little bit complicated in, in my opinion. Okay. I'm not the Bible. I'm not God. Um, I'm just a Christian trying to think these things through with you. Here's how I understand this. Fox.Dude um, is that trickery is often part of our deception into sin, but that God orchestrates things in such a way in the, in the universe, in the world, and in our lives that we end up going where we want to go. And so um, uh, let me give you an example from scripture that might help. Um, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head of some some scripture that would, would assist for this. Um, this is a warning about false teachers. Right, the Second Timothy four three it says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. People will not endure sound doctrine. What because of their own desires. Right, there's there so there's something in the, their desire false doctrine. Right, so what do they do? Because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The description here is of people who have motives towards false teaching. So they grab onto false teachers to teach them the false things that they can then, you, we can say of them, they're deceived by false teaching, but they were led there by motives. And here's what I see when I look at guys like Kenneth Copeland, right? Money-grubbing preachers. I think that many in their audience are money-grubbing people. I, I mean, there's an element of deception, whereas he's deceiving them about things. But there's an, el an element of greed in the heart of the person. This is this is why people fall for get-rich-quick schemes is because they're lazy and greedy. Why people fall for money-grubbing preachers who who treat, who treat uh, teach like financial give-to-get 
theology is because they're lazy and greedy. Like this is, this is what the, they have the same issues. So my answer to you is people can be tricked into hell, so to speak, but they were, but their desires for sin are what made them open to that trickery. That would be my, my thought on this. Um, now I'm not, uh, I don't want to paint with too wide a brush and say there's no exceptions to that rule. There's no other, other scenarios. This explains every human on earth who has a false belief. It's always because they just want it. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think that this does happen and it happens a lot. And I think that that's the case. Um, but people in North Korea, false religions, um, what I can encourage us with is this, um, the gospels in North Korea too. And there are Christians who are holding fast to the gospel of Christ and preaching the gospel of Christ at, at pain of their own death in North Korea right now. And other false religions, there's Christians all over the place. And there's also sometimes the work of the Holy Spirit bringing people out, like Abraham, just bringing them out. They didn't have, he didn't have a Bible, right? He just, God just brings him out and shows him the truth. And I, I believe in the power of God to do that too. All right. Ingrid Venter says, hello, Mike. How should James 5, 13 to 16 be interpreted in light of praying for the sick to heal, especially in church? I've seen people praying for others, expecting them to be healed immediately. Um, James 5, 13. Let's look at this passage and ask, does this mean we should always expect healing every time? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. If any, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will, he will be forgiven. So, um, the way a prosperity preacher, okay, we have to understand our, our cultural context. The way a prosperity preacher, or let me back up. Not even, I won't just say a prosperity preacher, although many of them are. The way a God always heals when you believe that kind of theology, they will say, look, you pray with faith, they get raised up. Meaning if you have enough faith, they get, they're, they're going to be healed. That's the whole equation. That's all there is to it. If you have the faith, they will be healed. The way that I will read this is rather that that faith is instigated by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I, this might sound strange. I think that I can establish this. And I'll, I'll point you guys to a teaching where I actually did. In fact, mods, uh, one of the mods, if you can put in the live chat, and I'll put in the video description later, the teaching that I did called um, something like, How Correct is Kenneth Copeland? Oh, that was the thumbnail. How Correct is Kenneth Copeland? The title of the video is something like, um, something like the best name it and claim it verse examined biblically or something like that. It has the phrase name it and claim it in the title. Anyway, I hope you guys can find it. That is where I do an exhaustive teaching on this exact topic I'm about to share with you. Okay. Here's my short summary of it for the sake of our Q and a on Fridays, that that faith is instigated by the Lord, by the Holy spirit. And so yes, the prayer of faith will save the sick, but that is not dependent just upon you, you choosing faith. That's part of it. But there's the leading of the spirit to show you, yes, I'm going to bring healing now. So a couple examples of this are Jesus throughout the gospels. He says things like, I only do what the father shows me, meaning that the healings Jesus performed were only at the instigation of the father. It wasn't just, a, I, if I believe enough, I can heal anybody. It was rather each healing was instigated by the father. Then we're to then pray and pray in his name and pray according to his will. Like Mark talks about Jesus praying according to the will of the father, not my will be done, but yours. Certainly there was no lack of faith. That, that made Jesus still go to the cross after praying in the garden to be delivered. There was no lack of faith there. This was the will of God. So um, yes, 
James says, the prayer of faith will save the sick, the Lord will raise them up. But is the only ingredient in faith here you trusting that God will heal? Or is the ingredient faith in the revelation that God is going to heal that person? In which case, healing is occasional and not every single time. Um, that's probably too little information for everybody. But if, if you are interested, again, I'm going to put a link in the video description below. And I highly encourage you guys to check it out. I don't know if it's in the live chat already or not. That video I did on Kenneth Copeland. Um, it's not really on Kenneth Copeland, but I compare his... T yeah, I see it there. I compare his teachings to the, uh, the stuff that we, uh, that we see uh, from Jesus. All right. Um, hold on just a second. <laughs> just a second. <laughs> Something weird is happening with my stream. Just make sure we're still live. Okay. Um, number 16. This is Sola FN who asks, isn't it problematic to affirm the Trinity while rejecting the metaphysical hermeneutic that was used to articulate slash defend the doctrine, in other words, divine simplicity in the early centuries? So, Sola FN, uh, I, maybe I'm a little behind on the philosophy here. I got to fully admit that. I don't know how divine simplicity is necessary for defending the Trinity. I don't know also that it seems to me that divine simplicity is a doctrine that really took root in the in a lot of the body of Christ later on after the doctrine of the Trinity was sort of already established. Like, I don't know, was divine simplicity firmly established in like the fourth century? I, not, not to my knowledge, okay? So that may be the case and I'm just like, just like, you know, unaware, uh, uninformed on this issue. So what I'm gonna suggest is, it seems to me the doctrine of the Trinity was secured before the divine simplicity became solid, which, which then, they may have used divine simplicity at that point to try to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't hold to divine simplicity personally. And so I, I, I wouldn't feel like I need to use it. Um, but more importantly, I would say this. I, <clears throat> I don't get the doctrine of the Trinity from the, um, uh, from the, the councils the, the, and the rulings and the creeds. Like, they're consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity, but I think that we get it from the Scripture, and I think that that's where they got it from as well. And there are some details there that, that where philosophy enters in, and on some of those things, I'm not going to push the details of the doctrine of the Trinity that harsh on people. I'm not, I'm not going to try to get them to decide on every single possible issue related to the Trinity. But the basic structure of the doctrine, I think, is clearly taught in Scripture, and we don't need that later philosophy or... Um, or even the, uh, the 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 creeds to prove it. I think they're just I think they're there as a result of the other thing. So I hope that helps. Um, I wish I knew more about the history of divine simplicity, uh, but I don't. <laughs> All right, we'll go to number seventeen. This is Nathan Neal, who says, "What is the Christian's role in bringing up non-believers' specific sins? Should we at all um, hear people reference John sixteen eight? How should we best evangelize to non-believers? Okay, um, there's kind of the last question. There's really broad, but let me just say John, sixteen, eight. You mentioned that verse. This is the function of the Holy Spirit. Actually, I'm kind of excited to get to talk about this on a stream here, because um, I have a, I'll, I'll I'll have an axe to grind here just briefly. So, about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when He has come, the Holy Spirit has come, and He's going to indwell the church. Right? He will convict the world of sin, right, of righteousness and of judgment. 
So these are the things the Holy Spirit convicts the world or makes the world aware of, right? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, bad things we do. Righteousness, God's holy requirements. Judgment, the fact that we'll stand before him one day and be judged. And these are all the things that drive you to the cross, aren't they, right? They, they make the message of Jesus real because you're like, I've sinned. God's holy. One day I'll be judged. I need Jesus, right? So this is... Um, this is significant. Now, my little axe to grind real quick before I go to your question is that some people say, I don't need to tell people about sin because the Holy Spirit is already doing that work. That's dumb. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 really is, that really is silly. Certainly, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit descends and Peter, filled with the Spirit, speaks to the people in Acts 2 and he tells them, you wicked people crucified the Lord. He's convicting the world of sin, is he not? Right? So that, that, is, really, that is really dumb. Um, so that being said, what is our role here um, in bringing up non-believer specific sins? I mean, generally, I can speak generally and then specifically. Generally, it is part of my job as a Christian to bring up the sin issues of the world because if I tell people to repent, I'm telling them to repent of something. So that actually is part of my job, and it is a very unpopular part of the Christian gospel. The bad news, the sin, righteousness, and judgment that come part, that's part of the gospel. So generally. Now specifically, like obviously there needs to be some wisdom here. I don't just go, like imagine I just go and I stand in the middle of like a workplace, and all I do is I stand there and go, you, you lusted, I just saw you. I saw you lusting, that was lust. You, right there, you lied. I know that that wasn't true. You're a liar. And I just, I mean, like, obviously that's not our, my role. The goal here is to preach the gospel that people might come to Christ and be saved. Um, I don't need to point out every sin somebody does. Um, but if I'm afraid to talk about sin, that's a different issue. So, um, yeah, I, I, I want to be able to speak openly. Part of evangelizing is, telling, is dealing with sin issues. And you may be able to convince someone to come to Jesus without ever talking about sin. And maybe they're like, man, I trust in Jesus. But my concern is, are they really? Like, is this a real conversion or a fake conversion? That's my concern there. Because later on, when someone's like, hey, man, you're still sleeping with your girlfriend. You know, you got to stop that. And they're going to look at you and be like, what are you talking about? This is a new concept. I have to change my life. Right? They're not really following if, if Jesus isn't able to tell them what to do. So, yeah, I think that we do have to have that attitude of being open about sin issues. Um, and... Um, the warning about making sure that we're not doing it to feel righteous ourselves, we're doing it to, to restore them. My goal of telling you about your sin is to bring you out of it. It's not just to point fingers at you, right? Like, I want to save you. I want to see you come out of this. Number 18, Kendall Lynch says, Did the Jews, for example, Nicodemus, understand the prophecies of a future cleansing as, involved, as involving literal water? For example, uh, and you give a passage in Ezekiel, we'll go to in a second. A college thinks so, a colleague thinks so. She believes baptism is necessary for salvation. So Ezekiel 36, and you have verses 25 through 27. Did the Jews in the Jewish milieu, did, did, are they like, hey, everyone has to be cleansed. You know, baptism was just known to be something that you had to do to be like saved. Is that is that the case? Ezekiel 36 says, Then I will sprinkle wa clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I'll put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is speaking, I think, about the new covenant, the new covenant that Jesus initiates, right? And um, sprinkling clean water is not baptism, actually. The terminology here, so it's important. Like water is doing, has a cleansing effect here. But the terminology here of sprinkling water is not baptism. In New Testament, there was no sprinkling. It was all dunkage. Okay, like baptizing, the word baptism means to immerse. It's just the meaning of the word. The examples we have at rivers, like they, they, why would you go to a river if all you got to do is get sprinkled? You know, um, baptisms were, were taking place through dunking. That's just how it was. So this already is a disconnect between those two. Um, so it's, it's speaking of like the ceremonial thing. God's saying that he's going to ceremonially cleanse them, right? They'll be cleaned. Doesn't mean there's going to be literal water. It just doesn't, it doesn't say that. I think we're going beyond the text there. So the, the tougher thing though, is when Jesus talks to John, uh, talks to Nicodemus in the gospel of John, and he says, you have to be born of, born of water and of spirit is that people take this to be water baptism. I, I, I'm inclined to think that the water, and maybe I'm wrong here. I could be wrong here. And I say that not because I'm unstudied on it, but because I am studied on it. And I have, a, a, there's a little bit of hesitance, but I still lean towards this interpretation, right? That the water is the first birth, the initial birth. I lean that way. The water is the initial birth. Um, you know, you you know, when you're born of your mother, you're born of water, right? The water breaks. There, there is a water involved. There, there is a, there, so there's an analogy here of your initial birth. Then you have to be born again of the spirit. Um, now, that may be wrong. And if it's wrong, here's my backup interpretation. <laughs> as strange as this might sound, my backup interpretation is that Nicodemus is being told, you should understand this being a Jew, right? And it, I don't think this Ezekiel passage is the, is the place where he understands it. Because this isn't about being born of water. This is sprinkle clean water. It's a little different. Um, but rather, it might be talking about how in the Exodus, they went through the Red Sea and the new nation was born through water, so to speak. And so when, and, and it could be related to, to baptism in some sense, when you get baptized as a Jew, you're, you're proclaiming that you are part of this new thing that Jesus is doing. You're becoming a new person. You're part of a, a, this, this new people that is the vine is Jesus and you're abiding in him as opposed to the vine being Israel. So what, what it's saying is you need a new identity, not just being a Jew. You have to be plugged into the Messiah. Um, now, does that mean that baptism is required for salvation? No, I don't think so. I have a whole debate on that. You guys could look at my four-hour debate on the discussion right there. Or even recently, I've talked about this issue a couple times. Um, so if you go to the website, biblethinker.org, that's my site. Everything's free there. We have a search feature there for searching for video content. We also have a search feature for clips. If you use that search feature, you can type baptism or baptism saves, and you will get several clips where I talk about these issues in much more detail. Number 19. Derry Draws says, what advice would you give for getting over a breakup biblically? Um, Derry, um, that's rough, man. I, I, I think that, uh, or, or, or woman, I'm, I just say man, generically here. Don't, don't be offended. Don't be offended if you're a man or a woman. I don't know. There's my cat. Look, look at my cute cat. How could you be mad at me? Aww. All right. So um, my advice to you for getting over a breakup biblically, I mean, biblically speaking, it is not wrong to have sorrow. Okay. It is not wrong to mourn. It is not wrong to be grieved and to be sad. And a breakup is a very grievous and difficult thing. So, so I'd say, first off, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to mourn. Secondly, biblically speaking, 
mourning has a limitation for Christians. Like we don't want to mourn too much. And so Paul talks about not more, not grieving or mourning as those who have no hope. And that's the thing I would warn you against. It's all mourning as a Christian is when you're grieving, you're not grieving like there's no hope. So it's okay to be down, but not to despair. Despair is like, oh, I give up. What's the point? My life is over. I just, ah, that's the despair thing. But in Christ, you're like, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has a purpose and plan for my life. I, I trust him. And my future is so glorious that whatever I'm going through now pales in comparison. This is mourning, but with hope. So don't mourn without hope. Other things I would advice I would give, and I'll be the nice thing about me being a stranger to you is that I I'm, I'm only speaking, I mean, a little more generically. So I can maybe tell you stuff that would be harder to say, you know, for someone to your face. So here's the things: um, avoid blaming your issues on the person you just broke up with. That's just a tendency we fall into, right? I broke up with them, and I have to find I have to find all the problems with them to make me feel better. It's okay to just be hurt. It's okay to just be sad. And it's okay to sit with your issues and go, yeah, I've got some problems. It's not over for me. My life's not over. But I can admit, if, if you have error and issues, to face those things and learn and grow from them and not let them become embedded and turn into bitterness towards others, I would say pray for them. Pray for God's God's will for their life. God to guide and direct them to the person that he would have them with for eternity or at least for this life. Um, that's another good, wonderful Christian thing to do. Love those who hate you even. Even if that breakup was ugly, love them, pray for them, bless them. Like, that's rude. That's not easy. Like, I mean, I'm just asking you to die to yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's all. So, but this is advice I think is valuable. I think it's very valuable. And that, I guess that'd be my encouragement. And of course, don't rush into another relationship because um, it's like going shopping when you're hungry. <laughs> you end up buying the wrong stuff. Um, all right. Last question today. Number 20. Andreas, uh, Andreas Zimmerman says... Prophecies in the Old Testament foretold Jesus coming as Messiah. But do any of those prophecies actually name Jesus, like give the name Jesus? Uh, are they being attributed to him without proof? How do we know any prophecy applies to him? Okay, great question. So the implication of your questions um, here are that if, if an Old Testament prophecy gave the name Jesus, that we would then have more confidence that they were directly about Jesus. But the the, the weakness of this reasoning is that so many people were named Jesus in the New Testament. Like so many people that for me, someone who's a, a prophecy buff, I care. I, I wouldn't find it impressive that much that Jesus was named unless his name was sort of a more of a rare name. Jesus is a very common name at the time. Um, the meaning of Jesus' name is interesting. And there is, there is some prophetic connection there. I mean, Joshua, his name, Yeshua, or Yehoshua, uh, by the time of Jesus' day, they were calling him Yeshua, and then that's Jesus' name in the Hebrew. So he has the same name as Joshua. That's interesting, because Joshua is the guy who comes after Mo uh, uh, after um, Moses, and he sort of steps into that role of being the next guy up after Moses. Moses leads to Joshua. Well, you know, Moses leads you to the, to the promised land, like the law leads you to the promised land. Joshua leads you in, like Jesus leads you in. So there, there's an interesting thing there. But that's more typology than direct prophecy, isn't it? So I don't know that I want to use that to initially establish the, the, Messiah, the Messiah nature of Jesus. So here's what I'm interested in. When it comes to Jesus, I want prophecies that would be hard to intentionally fulfill that Jesus can be said to fulfill. It's even better if there's like a time indicator, like it's, it's supposed to happen within a certain window of time. 
And it's also good if it's specific and detailed. So some of the examples here, my two favorite examples, Isaiah 52 and 53, the, those chapters, and Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is an example of this. It talks about how um, David is talking, and the Messiah is the son of David. This was known. Um, David was, was stood for the Messiah. By the time of Jesus, before Christianity rises, they think that David and the son of David, the Messiah, are connected, right? There, there's these deep connections. So he writes in Psalm 22 uh, a description that fits crucifixion really in a very detailed way, even talking about the hands being stretched out, pierced, hands and feet pierced. And there's a Hebrew debate on that, but I think that pierced is the right translation and that we actually have ancient Hebrew texts uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that help support that. So with the piercing of the Messiah, we have this, the, 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 those who are coming against him, um, the description of exactly things like his, his tongue swelling up and dehydration and his blood being poured out, all sorts of specific things. But let me give you, I'll give you a few examples here in closing because this is our last question. A few examples. Psalm 22 prophesies in detail something that looks just like crucifixion, even though crucifixion was not invented when Psalm 22 was written. It was seen as messianic by later Jews, even who aren't Christian, right? So um, uh, um, one of the, there's, in my video on Psalm 22, I get into this, but there's like a really highly respected, well-known rabbi in the, in the Middle Ages who says that Psalm 22 was written about the Messiah, right? And he's not a Christian. And so this just evidence that this isn't just something we're making up. But it not only describes the crucifixion, but also the death of this person who's going to be crucified or something that looks like crucifixion. He's, he's like David. He dies then. And after he dies, he's alive. He's going to see his posterity or, or his, his, uh, those who, you know, who take carry up after him, those who are saved, Christians in other words. He's going to see them and he'll live. And then it describes something really amazing, which is that the gospel is going to go out into all the world or the message of what this person did when he died wrongfully and then was alive again afterwards, that that message will go out into all the world and cause Gentiles to worship the God of Israel. And you've got to see, Andreas, you've got to see how mind-blowing this is. Judaism is not the world-changing religion at the time. Right? We're talking, it's just Israel, right? And other people in other nations are not, in David's time, they're not worshiping the God of Israel. They got their own gods. And he's writing this thing a thousand years before Jesus shows up that describes the crucifixion of, of, of Jesus, his death, wrongful death, his, his apparent resurrection. He's alive after he dies in the psalm. And then how the, the, the Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh, will be worshiped by people around the world as a result of this. And go 2,000 years later, that's literally what happened. Like, not only did Jesus die in that same fashion, in a way that looks so similar, it's, it's like, I don't know how you explain it if it's not intentional. But people around the planet are worshiping the God of Israel as a result. That, to me, is a pretty impressive prophecy. Isaiah 53 is another one that talks about that. Um, uh, Daniel has some prophecies about the Messiah that seem to mean it has to happen before the destruction of the temple, which was 70 AD. That's interesting because it means that these various things about the Messiah have to happen within a certain time period. Okay, well now it gets even more impressive. So in my series, I have a, of a 20, I think it's 20 part series called Evidence for the Bible. I go through prophecy a lot in that series. I take them individually, I go through them, I talk about, say, what a Jewish rabbi would say I'm doing wrong, and I respond to that, an atheist would challenge me with, I respond to that. 
that's that series is available for free. Um, you can get it on YouTube, Evidence for the Bible, or you can check it out on, on the website BibleThinker.org. Much more detail for each of these things. 22 parts, 23 parts. I don't know. Maybe I'll add more in the future. I'm just saying, I hope you check it out. I hope you check it out, Andreas. I appreciate your quest for prophecy that's robust in the way that it can defend the truth of Jesus. I, I'm with you, but I'm further down the road than you, and I can share with you what I found in that series. So thank you guys so much for uh, joining me. Again, announcement, I will not be here for the Fridays until December 3rd because the next two weeks we'll be, uh, I'll be doing various things. And um, I'm still working on my uh, Women in Ministry series. I know that many people are feeling kind of like they want an update on that. I don't even have an update on, on when it'll be ready. I mean, I wanted to do it like in November. I was like, oh, maybe November, but I was like being totally naive. There's just so much work to do and prep to do. And I'm taking my time, you know, I'll read a book and I get two pages in, and then I'm checking the footnotes, and I gotta go get this paper and get this other book, and I'm reading that, I'm checking it out. I'm trying to read more egalitarians. That's those who who would say there's there's no role differences between men and women in the church. Um, I'm reading more of them because they have the opinion I have historically not agreed with, and I wanna make sure I give, give a really good hearing to the side that I haven't heard as much. So I will share with you when it's all ready. Um, I don't know, that might be January now that we're moving towards December, and I got two weeks of busyness going on so forgive me for the time it takes to get all that done but i'm going to do my best with it and i hope you find it to be a, a, a real help yep thank you lord bless you keep you make his face to shine upon you do not forget that daily you are sustained by the grace of christ not your goodness his kindness